Well, thank you, Joseph and the worship team, and a very good evening. A warm welcome to every one of you who are tuning in to this, our, our Saturday live stream service. Welcome to All Saints Church. Welcome to the presence of the Lord as we continue on in our service. And at this point in time, can I invite you to turn with me to the passage that we're going to look into for this evening. <coughs> and we're going to read the passage from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 17. So once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, reading from verse 1 to verse 17. And the Apostle Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Verse 10. And according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, lay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So if anyone destroy God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Shall we just bow our heads as we commit this time to the Lord in prayer? And so, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. So, church, continuing on in our study, as we look into the church in Corinth and what it means for you and I here in All Saints English to be a strong a healthy and a vibrant church, we now want to unpack this whole chapter of chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul 
clearly points out to the Corinthians' jealousy and strife as the main cause of the church division. Now, the last time we left chapter 2, Paul had insisted that spiritual truth can only be discerned by spiritual people. And now he shocked the Corinthian Christians by telling them bluntly that in his view, they do not qualify as spiritual people. He begins in verse 1 with this very sentence. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now observe here in this particular verse, Paul calls them brothers, remembers that they are members of God's elect, and rightly so. But yet at the same time, although he calls them brothers, he indicates that they are not yet truly spiritual. Yes, though they may be in existence for maybe four or more than five to six years since Paul founded the church, but nevertheless, they were still described as people of the flesh as infant in Christ. They were not likened to adults, craving after solid food, but instead as infants fed with milk. And for the Corinthians, this must have come as a huge blow to them. And immediately from the words that Paul used here, we can really see that the root of the problem lies in their immaturity. And based on the apostle's remark, the key assumption for us to note is that spiritual growth or spiritual maturity is something that is gradual and progressive. It is not something automatic. It is not something immediate. It doesn't mean that the moment you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are spiritually mature. No. One does not become mature overnight. There must be stages in which we go through, very much like the human body. The moment we are born, we are a child, we move from adolescence and then to adulthood. And so the warning for us, the first warning for us here perhaps is this. We can claim to be Christians for many years, but be warned. You can at the same time not be maturing as in the case of the Corinthians. But why, did the, 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 what, but why did the apostle accuse the Corinthians of immaturity? Truth of the matter is, it's not difficult to determine the maturity of an individual. And according to Paul, we find in this whole passage, there's really five ways that you and I, we can gauge our maturity. And according to Paul, he says that the first way we can judge, we can determine whether we are mature individual is by our diet, what we eat. Again, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still in the flesh. So Paul is saying, are you feeding on milk, or are you seeking out solid food? You see, this was Paul's opening argument. And the difference really between the two categories is this. The one who feeds only on milk, Paul says, is still in the flesh. 
And if you're feeding on milk, you're in the flesh. And this can only be determined when you know only basic facts about who Jesus is. Basic facts like Jesus came to die on a cross for our sins. He came to, on this earth for 30 years. He served in, in, in his ministry for three years. We know what he did and so forth. Basic facts about Jesus. But on the other hand, the one who is feeding on solid milk, this is the person who is constantly reading, studying, and applying the Bible truth. These are the people who are handling the truth of God's Word. And that's a big difference. In other words, the person who is feeding on solid food, he can rationale for himself what is right and what is wrong using the Bible as a compass to guide him. Now, of course, basic facts about the love of God is important. But nevertheless, we need to understand that a growing Christian still needs to progress and move on to deeper things. So yes, you can be a Christian for 20, 30, even 50 years. But if you're still feeding on milk, on the basic stuff, if you're not progressing further into the Word of God, then you are an immature Christian. Why? Because Paul reminds us again that spiritual growth is never stagnant. Spiritual growth is always progressive. So back over to us. Are we feeding on milk or are we craving for solid food? And this will determine on whether where we stand on worldviews like acts of abortion, on issues like divorce, or whether we want to take a liberal view over LGBTQ lifestyle. Do we know what scriptures have to say over these things? Our diet determines our maturity. But Paul moves on. He also tells us another way to determine the maturity of a, of a disciple is through their actions. It's love, forgiveness, a constant way of the disciple's life. Is there an intention of wanting to seek reconciliation, to get along with one another at all costs and to resolve any conflict that is happening. Now, if the Corinthians firmly believed that they were in this group of the spiritually matured, they were in for a root shock. For Paul dramatically slammed them in the second part of verse 3, he says this, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? Listen to the words again. Paul is insisting here that if there's jealousy among the community, if there's any conflict, if there's any strife among the community, quarreling, these are signs of the flesh. It confirms you as immature rather than as mature Christians. You see, for Paul, being of the flesh is equated with living in rivalry and causing disunity within the church. As long as there's no reconciliation, as long as there's no attempt to want to put aside that conflict and live in peace with each other, Paul is saying 
you are an immature Christian. And so if the Corinthians were to accept this logic, Paul is saying then you shouldn't be lobbying for your various party, you know, or for your various slogan. You shouldn't be saying that I want to support Paul, I want to support Cephas, or I want to support Apollo, as though it was an election campaign. No. If they were matured Christians, they would realize that this action is very immature. And before proceeding on, it's again significant that we pause at this time to consider our own maturity. Are you mature or immature Christians? See, all too often, we may tend to think, like the Corinthians, that we are spiritually strong, that because we have been a Christian for a long time, only to discover that we are not mature. And as Paul mentioned, maturity is determined by our diet, but more so by our actions and our behavior. You see, it's always very easy, isn't it? Today, I can share with you and say that the Bible teaches us to forgive, and you can agree with me. Yes, we should be forgiving one another. It's easy to say all these things, especially when everything is going on well. But church, listen to this. It is when the tire hits the road, when someone offends you or hits you hard, that's where the test of our action in what we say, I forgive you, really matters. And you know, the recent River, River Valley High case is a wonderful testimony of a matured Christian's reaction of forgiveness to the world. Here's an account of a teacher regarding her principal who happens to not be a, a, a Christian at all. And this uh, teacher was sharing how her principal went to the wake of the 13-year-old boy who died under her charge. And as she went over to the wake, she expected the parents who were Christians to be particularly hostile. After all, you know, their son died in the, in, in the care of the school where she was, she, when she was leading. But you know, when she reached at the wake, she discovered that the mother was usually calm, unusually calm, and the father, after crying for a while, ministered to her. The family that she came to comfort was the very one that was comforting her. And she testified to the school of how that family lived out the Christian values that they believe in. How the parents said that they were not angry at the 16 years old boy who took their son's life. And get this, they, they even asked the principal to convey to the 16 years old boy parents that they should take care of themselves. Wow. What would you have done if you are in that position? The parents of the dead boy forgave the 16 years old boy. Why? Because they lived out the Christian value that they believe in. They lived out this Christian value that they were taught to forgive one another. Yes, it's not easy, but this is maturity. And you know, being Christians living in a fallen world, people are often constantly watching us. They will look at us 
They know that we preach peace. We know they know that we preach forgiveness. But they are looking at us, seeing whether when the opportunity comes, do we really seek out this peace? Or do we insist on our own rights and thereby causing friction with one another? And as Paul highlighted, if we are doing all these things, these are the acts of the flesh and only confirm that we are immature, no matter how long a Christian you may be. Now moving on to the next section from verses 4 to 9. Paul next demonstrates that the immaturity of the Corinthian church for their rallying around different leaders, and he uses himself and Paul and, and, and Apollos, sorry, as illustration. In other words, Paul is saying that a matured Christian should be unbiased in the way he thinks. A matured Christian should be unbiased in his words that he used. A mature Christian should be unbiased in the action. Rather, he sees the bigger picture. So the rhetorical question of verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Paul immediately replied straightforward by saying that they are just merely servants of the Lord, each with an assigned role. And then to drive home this point, Paul uses this metaphor of various workers out in the field. He says in verse 6 that there'll be one worker who will be doing the planting, another worker who will be watering. But of course, this does not mean that they are the same person, but that the effort are complementary to each other. Paul is saying that both workers are different. Both are necessary for the work to be a success. So therefore, to play off against one another is not only ridiculous, but for Paul, this is wrong. Therefore, he says that there should be no biasness as these leaders are God's servants. These leaders are servants of the same God fulfilling a God-given assignment. And, God, and Paul continues to state here the futility of this biasness of, of their preference for certain leaders because he says here, you know, that no matter who they support, the effort of these leaders would not be a success apart from God who gave the growth. And Paul highlights this twice in successive verses, in verse 6 and verse 7. He re-emphasized to them that it doesn't matter who you serve. It doesn't matter who you prefer. It doesn't matter who you want to support. Their success is not based on their ability. Their success is only based on God. And this truth is further echoed by the psalmist who utters the words in Psalms 127 verse 1 that unless the Lord builds the house those who build it labor in vain so the point that the apostle is making is simply this the emphasis must only be on God and God alone our emphasis must never be on the laborers not on Paul, not on Apollos. And it is wrong and immature if we are centering our attention onto God's servant, no matter how eloquent, no matter how polished they may be. Our eyes must only be fixed on the Lord, the source 
of all blessing and growth. And in using this image of a worker in God's field, I want to sidetrack for another lesson concerning growth. You see, Paul is affirming to us here that there must be growth in every local church. I say again, there must be growth in every local church. It is a flawed thinking to view otherwise. It is wrong to say that God put me in this church, a small church that can never grow. That's utterly nonsense. God's church is always meant to grow. It's whether we choose to be part of this growth or not. Every church must be bearing fruit. And in fruit bearing, we find that there's always this diversity of ministry. And as Paul pointed out, one will do the work of plowing, another will sow the seed, and the third will do the watering. And as time passes, the plant grows, the fruit appears, and everybody will enjoy the fruit of the harvest. So this tells us that there can be no such thing as an isolated ministry. Because the church of God, through a body, though it's a body of many parts, they are working together as one. Second, we learn from Paul here that in any growth, there's also the unity of purpose. So no matter what work a person is performing, he is still part of the harvest. Be it Paul, Apollos, or Peter, they are not competing with each other, but they are complementing each other in the assigned task that will bring about the reward. And put this in our local context, in all saints. This means that you and I, we each have a part to play. You may be a cell group leader. You may be like Hui Yen doing the backup singer or Chin and the rest of the musician or those up in the, in the sound console. You may each have your assigned task. And it's only when we work together as one with that same vision, then there will be that growth. And finally, Paul is also telling us that for growth to be there, there's the need for humility. And to be sure, it is not man, it is not me that will produce the harvest. No, no matter how much effort we put in, it is God alone that gives the growth, both the spiritual growth of the individual as well as the numerical growth. And again, just to reiterate, <coughs> the word that was given to me by God in Isaiah 60, if you recall, God is saying that He will bring in people, sons and daughters who will be coming back. Foreigners will be walking into our doors. And you know, even in this COVID period, we have people coming in saying that they are, they, they, they're asking us whether we're going to open our, our doors physically, and they are waiting to come to visit us. God is doing something. It is not what I'm doing. It is not what staff team is doing. All this I can only attribute to God who is bringing us this growth. And with the final words of verse 9, we find that Paul now shifts to a new metaphor. And this time, 
he uses that of a building. He says in verse 9 that you are God's building. And so just as God's field, one plants and another waters, we find here that in God's building, one will lay the foundation while there's another person who erect the superstructure. And so we read here in this next section that Paul compares himself to a skilled master builder, someone who carefully laid the foundation of the building before subcontracting it to the rest of the work to others. And so in, his, in using this image, Paul is therefore making the point that the right foundation is pertinent to determine whether you are a matured Christian. You see, any architect will tell you that in order for any building to ensure the harsh weather to the wear and tear and yet to be able to remain upright, the construction should not be done in a hasty manner, but time must be taken to build solidly from the ground. And similarly, if we are to journey towards spiritual maturity, if we are to deal with the many trials of life that will come our way, we must certainly meet some conditions. And as Paul writes, continuing verse 10, he says, let each one take care how he builds it. So you see, shoddy workmanship is not to be tolerated. What then are the criteria for a strong foundation? Well, Paul continues to tell us in verse 11, he says, for a start, we must build on the right foundation. And that foundation is in Jesus Christ. Our foundation must be in Jesus and Jesus alone. But you know, the problem for many Christians is that, unfortunately, they tend to build their lives on big churches. They build their lives around famous preachers. They hinge, they hinge to, a, to, to, to a certain style, emphasizing on certain doctrine. And for the Corinthian church, we find that they were focusing on the well-known personalities of individuals like Paul, Peter, and Apollos, instead of glorifying and focusing on God. So if our lives are not centered around Jesus, then I'm afraid that it will collapse, it will come crashing down when faced with the tough challenges and the disappointments in life. So in a nutshell, if we, if we are not grounded correctly with the right foundation, then you will find that you will not be able to deal with the many highs and lows of the storms of life that when one crisis comes after another, that, you know, we almost were reaching phase three when we're about to come out and then the heightened alert comes back in again. If our foundation is not found in Jesus, we would probably give up and cry and get fed up. But if our foundation is found in Jesus, we will not be affected by this high and this lows. We will not be able to, we, we will not be able to act positively on the situation that is beyond our control. And we will often be swayed by the many influence of the worldviews. So this shows us the importance for us to build on the right foundation. And the second criteria for a solid, reliable foundation is to build with the right 
materials. Now, in any construction, if the work is not up to standard or unusual, un unsuitable materials are used, then we know that there will be dire consequences. We know that we are uh, doing the renovation work in, in, in Pauksun Lo. If we don't ensure that the proper material is being used, problem will arise. So we must ensure that we build with that right material. And the choice of materials that Paul mentions here in verse 12, he mentions gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. And note the six different building materials here are arranged in descending order of value. Gold is more important than silver. Silver is more important than precious stone and so forth. But also note that this category can also be classified into two parts, as you see in the chart. When we remember that Paul had been writing against human wisdom in the preceding chapter in verses 18 to 22, we can see the connection here. You see, the worldly Christians were attempting to build their lives on man's wisdom. And this is found, as Paul describes, as the wood, hay, and straw. And for Paul, these things are temporal. These things are easily burned up. They cannot be trusted. But instead, what Paul is saying, our foundation must be depend on the wisdom of God as found in the Word. And this is represented by gold, silver, and precious stones. And so once again, we find that Paul is touching on the importance of our diet for us to be matured Christians. The diet of the mature is to dig deep into Scriptures, to mine out this truth, and to build upon them in their lives. And why is this important? Paul tells us in the next verse, he tells us that our lives will ultimately be subjected to God's testing. He tells us that on the day, referring to that great day of judgment, where God will send forth His holy fire to test what sort of work each one has done. And this fire is the traditional Old Testament image of God's judgment. So if your life is being built on cheap materials like wood, hay, and straw, it will go through God's judgment, and eventually it will be burned up and destroyed. And God will judge you and say your foundation is not strong. But if your foundation is built on something that is precious, solid, gold, silver, precious stone, and when it survived through the fire, Paul says in verse 14, you will receive a reward. You are a matured Christian. The challenge, therefore, for all of us <coughs> is to build the foundation of our lives on the correct materials so as to stand the test of fire. The final imagery that Paul developed here is that the individual is not just a building, but he tells us that we are also the temple of God, that we, our body, is the place where God's Spirit dwells. He says this in verse 16, and he repeats this in chapter 6, verse 19. He tells the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. Now, I want you to notice Paul's question here. He says, 
Don't you know? Don't you know? He attributes the, the Corinthians' failure to their ignorance or their forgetfulness. He's saying that if only you knew, or if, if only you remember, you would have behaved differently. So what was it that Paul laments that the Corinthians did not know or forget? It was their identity, that they are a people of God. Remember in chapter 1, I shared that Paul begins by telling them that you are called as saints. So apparently the Corinthians have forgot this calling, that they are called as saints, set apart. And because they are set apart, they are recognized as God's holy temple. So the fifth point that Paul is trying to tell us here, mature Christians are those who know that their bodies are God's holy temple. That their bodies are God's holy temple because it is the place where God's Spirit resides in. If you read in the Old Testament, you find that the essence of the temple is often the place where the Almighty God dwells in. God said in Exodus 25 verse 8, Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And when you come to the New Testament, you find that God's temple or dwelling place is now in the hearts and bodies of you and I. And church, don't miss this. Because God's Spirit dwells in us, and because of the sacred nature of our body, that it is the dwelling place of God and His Spirit, we dare not, we must not dishonor our body in any way. What does this mean? It means, therefore, our body must not be divided by jealousy and rivalry. Our body must not be deceived by false teachings, nor be defiled by immoral conduct. We must keep our body holy, keep away from sexual immorality, keep away from things that will cause the body to be defiled. And church, listen to this. Paul gives a very important warning. He says this in verse 17, that if we don't take his dwelling place seriously, but we take our body as a playground for our own advancement and causes, the warning that Paul gives is this. He says these words, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. If anyone destroy God's temple, God will destroy him. And how is it that we can, how is it that we can destroy God's temple? Well, it is when we don't take care of our bodies, when we don't eat healthily, or we don't exercise regularly, when we make our bodies, you know, subject to drugs, to smoking that can cause harm. Or we subject our bodies to sexual immorality acts, which is defilement to God. We must remember that as matured Christians, our body belongs to God. We therefore ought to live out a holy and peaceful life with one another, a life that is pleasing to God. I'll get the worship team to come up now, and as I close, and as Joseph and the team prepares themselves for the closing song, you know, I want you to know that part of the key process of discipleship is really growing towards maturity.
The Apostle Paul writes in another letter to Colossians in chapter 1, verse 28. He says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's our goal. That as a church, each and every one of us are matured in Christ. And to be matured in Christ means we need to put aside our immaturity. It means putting aside our jealousy, our strife. It means not being sensitive when someone says something about you and you get all angry and upset. It means putting away our minor bickering, small little things that we may think you know, people are saying things that are hurting me. Don't let that affect you at all. When conflicts arise, and that is bound to, are we therefore as willing Christians to sit down at the table, to trash things out lovingly, or do we take the easy and immature way out and blame everyone and then you leave the church? If we do that, that's the sign of immaturity. And so church, as we close, as we, make, as we work all things towards being a church of maturity, let us as disciples check on our own self. Are we mature disciples? Check on the five things that Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 3. Check on your diet. Are you growing strong in the Word? Do you know how to handle the truth? Or are you just taking in basic facts? What is your action when someone offends you? Are you ready to seek that peace, to forgive? Or are you going to get upset and blame everybody and, 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 and you know, get into a situation where forgiveness is so difficult? Are you biased? Are you biased? over certain people in the church? What is your foundation like? Is it built on Christ? And lastly, how is your lifestyle? Is your body glorifying God? So church, as we close, let's strive towards being a church that is filled with mature disciples. And we're going to close as we're going to ask Joseph to lead us in the song. Hallelujah.